Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, I'm bringing you a live show that we did at CTEC, which is kind of Japan's version of America's CES show. We worked with Plug and Play Japan to set up an event where we could bring two hardware innovators on stage. And we had an in depth discussion of what it takes to be a hardware startup in a world where venture capital seems fixated on SaaS companies and software platforms. Now, in the show, I introduced both of my guests. And if you were at CTEC, you would have seen their company booths and understood what they're all about. But since you probably weren't at CTEC this year, I'll explain a bit about the companies our guests run. Tomo runs Aquabit Spirals, and they use NFC chips that can be embedded in, well, just about anything, that allow mobile phones to interact directly with signs, buildings, or any physical object, really. And Keith runs Crown Digital, which makes robot baristas. It's a robot that brews and serves up coffee. Okay. So at first glance, it seems that Tomo and Keith are running two very different companies. But you'll see that many of their core experiences are very similar. Oh, and by the way, I was recovering from a bad cold on this day, so the first few minutes of the interview, my voice is squeaky to the point of sounding a bit like Mickey Mouse. But if you suffer through those first few minutes, <laughs> as I certainly did, it all stabilizes. And we have a great conversation. Both Tomo and Keith have some great advice about raising money as a hardware startup and how to give large companies confidence that your product will meet their quality standards. And they share some pretty surprising answers to my questions about the best way to go global. But you know, Tomo and Keith tell that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. Listen, I want to thank you all. We're going to have um, we're going to have the music fade out. Excellent. So, listen, today we're going to be talking about business to business sales for hardware startups. And before I do that, let me introduce myself and our panelists. So, my name is Tim Romero.、Uh, I run a podcast and startup community called Disrupting Japan, where we. Interview Japanese startup founders in English, which means there's alcohol involved in quite a lot of these conversations.、Yeah. Some、and、more than others. <laughs> but we talk not so much about the specific companies, but the broader lessons to be learned.、Uh, it's really startup founders helping each other, and that's what we're going to do today. Hopefully, the three of us, anyway, are going to learn something, and hopefully, you will too. So, first, let me introduce Keith Tan. He's a wealth manager and coffee enthusiast who turned entrepreneur. Now, Keith's passion for customer experience started the Crown Coffee journey in 2016, and his love for technology drove him to open a smart cafe where everything is connected, integrated, and digitalized, with the exception of the coffee, I assume. <clears throat> coffee stays the same.、It's、coffee is、school. still analog. Analog, yeah. All <laughs> right. So,、um, Keith tells me he envisions a world where robotics, artificial intelligence, and data analytics combine to solve real world pain points in traditional businesses. And along the way, he plans to put a great cup of coffee in everyone's hand. 
with Ella, a robotic coffee barista crown digital solution they say will disrupt and revolutionize the way that food and drinks are served in this world. And in the center, we have Tomo Hagiwara, who started his business career at Recruit after graduating from Waseda. Uh, so he didn't stay there long. He started his first startup here in Japan, creating websites back in 95. And then after 20 years in the internet industry, he left software and jumped over the wall onto the hardware, hardware side, founded Aquabit Spirals to create value by connecting the physical and digital world. And he's been working on developing near-field near communications since 2011. So uh, Aquabit Spirals provides IC chips that can be embedded into small devices and let mobile devices interact directly with physical objects. The company's mission is to create a culture of tap and connect. And I really but, wanted but to do... But am I okay? About, I'm anxious about your voice condition. We're going to get you, through you, it. You should take a warrant. Yeah. At the beginning. Well, hopefully you guys are going to be doing most of the talking. <laughs> so let's talk about B2B hardware sales. Because enterprise hardware sales really is fundamentally different from both consumer hardware sales and from business-to-business uh, -business software sales. So I I'm curious, in both of your cases, what's been your strategy to kind of get past this gee whiz attitude and, and to actually get to the people who can make a decision to buy your products? Keith, do you want to start us off? So um, we created um, Ella. She's a robotic barista serving coffee. So um, that's something quite new. Mm. And, um, you know, first of all, we did a lot of roadshows, a lot of events, a lot of exhibitions. And that got a lot of uh, attention from the, the larger corporates. I think the process, the sales process is quite long, especially B2B. And when the checkbook is, is you know, it's got to be a big one. <laughs> so what, what's been, to, to dig into that a little bit, so what's been your experience? I mean, how do you move from the, wow, that's a cool robot, to we'd like to give you this half-million-dollar contract to install these baristas in our location? First of all, you really need to understand their pain points. What are you solving for them? You, you need to give them bullets to sort of take, tick tick that solves my problem okay let's find a fund to su support that and really it's a long process for them so, because there are many stakeholders as well so what's the biggest pain point you're solving first of all it's definitely manpower because we are automating the process um and secondly it's um i think for us we have a bit of a I, I always say the unfair advantage, being you know innovators, being ahead of the curve, so you get extra attention because you know it's something noble, something new. But time r runs out, you know, and you got to go fast. But you need to get the decision makers out there, you know, and fast. <laughs> okay. Tomo, I know you've been selling hardware to businesses for a long time. Yeah. What What's been the biggest the biggest challenge in getting business customers to take a new hardware device seriously and put money behind it? Um, it's a good question. It was uh, every time we are we are thinking about that, you know, how to explain about uh, you know our product and uh, customer journey map. But uh, now uh, we maybe we can talk about uh, what is uh, our 
value proposition and uh, what we can solve the problem for the business partners. We have a words to explain that currently, but uh, we have no cases. Especially in Japan,、uh, our business partners need actual cases in the past. So, is having case studies, is having existing customers, sort of the most important aspect of getting new partners? Yeah, actually, we we approach it to the many industries, maybe for the five years to find the which market we can fit. And、uh, yet,、uh, last year, last year we finally found. The market—it's an inbound market, tourist market, because our technology don't need to install specific application. Just to tap and connect to the web-based services,、okay. so app-based service can be fit to the inbound tourist. We finally found last year. All right. Well, has there been a particular other than the direct sales approach? Has there been other avenues that have been useful in contacting large companies? For example, have you found? Pitch contests to be useful. Have you found corporate accelerators to be useful? Has there been any other sort of non-standard avenues that are good for startups to make contact? Yes, as you explained right now,、uh, we entered to many pitch contests, and、uh, sometimes we get to win. It was very good promotion for us. Our product is just to connect physical things and physical places with online services. So mainly our target partner is the big companies. But、uh, we understand it's not easy to knock directly for them. So we use the acceleration program and the pitch contest like a promotion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the accelerators pitch contests have been very important in Japan. And Keith, I'm curious. In in Singapore, do startups have the same experience? Are pitch contests and these kind of open innovation programs useful in making corporate sales? There are lots of、um, opportunities for startups to pitch. Same, same like here in、um, plug and play. For us, we started as a coffee shop and then innovated with our technology. So、um, it's only the beginning for us to really start going to pitching competitions, and, and it's been great exposure for us. But what I can share is the collaboration we have with large organizations. Large organizations, they. They have many stakeholders, you know, to make approvals, and it, it takes time. But if you're willing to do a POC for them, right? Say, okay, let's let's work on、um, a use case. Let's test it out. Let's do it for a month or、um, a week, and then you know what? That helps because then they can bring the the stakeholders along and 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 show it to them, and you know, prove that it works. You know. This actually this gets back to exactly what Tomo was talking about about the importance of having like existing customers to point to. So when doing POCs, do you ever do basically free POCs or are they always paid? We 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 get them to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I always hate working for free.、Uh, But sometimes we we do the free POC. Sometimes. Have you have the free POCs turned into real customers? More just we we want to get we want to get new cases right, right. so、uh, when we want to approach it to the new use cases、uh, we don't need money just、uh, we want the case、okay. actual case and with a big brand name so so the goal of doing the POC with say company X is not necessarily just to sell to company X it's to sell to the broader market. Sorry, let me explain exactly. Okay, we don't charge、uh, system usage, but、uh, of course、uh, they pay us the, for the hardware. 
And, and do those proof of concepts, do they later turn into like larger accounts or is the value really that you can take that example and say to other customers, hey, we've worked with this company, the product works in the market. I think it, it goes both ways. Yeah. You know, you convince that comes customer and then that also becomes a use case for other businesses. And I think the more you do, the more examples you have to convince your future customers. So, so we're definitely happy to do POCs and, and to support. Yeah. I, I think so. It's interesting because it's something that startups need to be really careful about because I, I have seen a number of startups who have been far too willing to do free POCs. And they never seem to convert it to real paying clients. But that's, yeah, that makes sense. It's a really useful step. As a hardware manufacturer, so quality standards for business and business hardware in particular are pretty strict. It's different than trying to sell like Internet of Things gadgets. It's different from selling software. How do you demonstrate to corporate clients that your hardware is high enough quality for them to use, either within their own companies or with their customers? In our case, uh, our product is very simple, simple hardware. So probably we don't have so big advantages uh, only on the hardware side. Our product is not only hardware, but it can work with our software platform. It's important. So our demonstrate is working with our excellent software platform, so maybe we don't, we are not 100% hardware-based startup, half and half. Okay, so when, when your customers are concerned and looking over and judging quality, they, they tend to be more concerned on the software integration side than about the hardware itself? Um, we believe it's basically software-based, All right. I believe. <laughs> but, but every company, every partners, at the beginning, they keen to use this very simple user interface on the hardware side. All right. Keith, what about you? Because you've got an incredibly complex hardware product. Yes, we do. It's literally running a, a, a full-on restaurant with robots in there. It's, it's rather complex, and, and, and it's, it's expensive. Well, and, and you've got robots like moving around boiling water and, and you know. Yeah, just doing the pick and place, you know, like what a barista would do. But it's, it's you know, um, sometimes they go, oh, how much is that? And we're in hundreds of thousands. And they go, that's, that's way too expensive. But they don't realize if you were to open a, a restaurant, you're going to spend a few hundred thousand dollars as well. So we are not, nothing less than a restaurant. But with that one upfront payment, and then you have the automation that was going to, you know, bring your bottom line down, the manpower savings. So you know, I, I think this, this might be a really interesting point that shows how um, sales in Singapore is different from sales in Japan. So I would you're like to learn about that because we want to sell to Japan. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, so your main value proposition or one of the main value propositions is that you can reduce the cost of running a coffee shop by, by automating the barista. And most Japanese sales, you have to get through a whole discussion about quality before you even start talking about price. 
that the quality <laughs> is assured. You know, all they need is to test it. Um, how, how do they? How do your customers test it? How do they make sure that it's that the robot's not going to? I don't know. Go crazy and start throwing hot coffee at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we do a lot of stress tests. You know, they'll probably invite us for um, an event, and uh, we'll be running it through. You know, and they, they gauge from the, the general acceptance of everyone employees and their customers that they invite. They have thousands of people that come through and generally if everyone says, you know what, it's good, you know, we like it. So that that's that sets the mood. Yeah. Okay. So it's demos at trade shows and events and things like that. Yeah, so um, we should be here to, actually. Yeah, I was gonna ask. I was about to get here. I could use a um, cup of coffee. Yeah. All right. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So it gets back again to the the proof of concept. We want to make it easier for the larger organizations to say yes. So give them a reason to say yes. You know, and you, sometimes you need to just go the extra mile just to make it easier for them. Just just tick. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about sourcing? So it, it seems these days almost all hardware manufacturing is done in in China. But uh, Keith, you've got a really complex collection of components besides the basic industrial robots. Where where do you source the hardware itself? Oh, it's um, wow. <laughs> we have from all over the world. The coffee machines are from they're from Switzerland, the best in the market. Robots are made in Taiwan, like Guangdao Computers, Techman, and then you have our IPCs is in Taiwan through Intel's. Um, partners, you know, ODM partners, sensors from everywhere, really. We, we, we piece them together. And so for the robot controller part, where it was actually learning how to make the coffee, was that something that you guys developed internally or that your automation partner, your right, Taiwanese so partner did? A good thing is we started as a coffee shop. So by default, we know how to make a good coffee, <laughs> right? So then the robots came in to sort of automate that process that we already know. So robots not making the coffee is, 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 is doing the pick and place motion, right? The coffee machine is the one that's making coffee, but the ingredients, the recipe is our IP. But it's easy to see the robot as is so heavy on hardware, but 90% of it is the software. The hardware is just 10%. Um, it's it's the, the back-end infra that is orchestrating the entire user flow, the mobile app, syncing to the cloud, the payments, the advertising. All that is, is really the IP stays in, in, in the back-end. So, so is your IP primarily the integration of the components and the, the recipe for the coffee itself? So I always pride ourselves to be very unique because we are a coffee shop, a system integrator, and a software company. So a coffee shop, automation specialist, and a software house. Okay, so I mean, just, just to clear, so the core IP is in the... The software. The software? Okay. Tomo, I mean, you've... You're saying you're a hardware company, but primarily a software company. Your devices have been inserted into a lot of different kinds of hardware. Are your manufacturing partners here in Japan, or have you mainly moved to China for that? At the beginning of this business, because we had started working with Shenzhen factory at the beginning. But, uh, and after that, uh, we tried to find another partners in all over Asia, Taipei. Taiwanese factories, but now we are working with a Japanese factory only. Why? 
Uh, we have two reasons. The biggest reason is the cost per quantity. Because currently, our customer does not order so much quantity. It's very small. small for the small quantity, the cost would be high because you know, we have to import. So currently, we are working with a Japanese company. But uh, of course, we are keeping in touch with uh, those factories in all around Asia. Well, that's interesting because that so it actually was cheaper to manufacture small lots in Japan. Yes, that because you know Japan manufacturing has this it, this reputation for being really really expensive, and China has yeah. a reputation for being really really cheap. What drove the costs up? Was it just shipping? Maybe it because you know our hardware is so simple mechanism. So Japanese uh, factory. Their cost is not so high. It's interesting. I think without the volumes, the Chinese factories don't want to even take it. They say, "Sorry, I'm not interested to do a small volume." Yeah. Huh. And and I mean, you've you've found. I mean, you've sourced from all over the world, but it has not. It sounds like it definitely has not been like a low cost production on. It's definitely not, but um, because on a daily basis we are we have recurring income. We're actually selling coffee. So, so there's a recurring income from there. So we're not actually that keen in selling just the hardware, but rather have a profit-sharing model. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that because it is, I mean, Starbucks has done really well funding growth by selling coffee. But most startups, that's not a practical way of doing it, and they need to go out and look for, for real venture capital funding. And one thing I've heard again and again from hardware startups is that venture capitalists, VCs, are much more likely, much faster to invest in software companies than they are in hardware companies. And, and Keith, I'm wondering, has, has this been your experience as well? And why do you think it is? Yes. Um, so we are in our fundraising process right now. And um, a couple of VCs we have met they are really, their investment theses or their mandate is really on software-based startups. Um, so with the minute they know we have hardware, they go, no, it's too heavy, and they're not interested. Is that, have they, for example, does their fund not allow them to invest in anything but software, or they just think hardware is too risky? Or I think it's just a mandate, the way the fund is structured you know, to invest in software companies. Um, but that means there's an opportunity. So VCs out there, listen, <laughs> there's an opportunity, there's a gap, there's a funding gap for companies like us where we are really solving real-world problems with automation and software. You can't eliminate the hardware component because we're actually producing something, a physical product. It's not an online kind of product. It is a physical product where you need machinery, you need hardware. And, and the VCs you've been talking to, have they been mainly Singapore-based VCs? I wish I could have met a lot more. <laughs> um, never too many. Based in Singapore, right. but they are with offices around the world. But um, I would like to meet some um, VCs out of Japan, actually. Tomo, you've raised uh, funds here in Japan from VCs. Do you think VCs are less likely to invest in hardware? It's a very interesting question for me. The the answer from uh, what they are investing for, hardware or software or team or founders or other something, I don't know. But... uh, in our case, probably uh, for the VC, they're thinking about 
our company is software best company. Ah, okay. They recognize. So, of course, we don't explain about uh, our hardware side story so much. <laughs> okay, Every so when you're... I talk only, you know, software side and our experiences and my uh, mission <laughs> and vision, you know. So it's so you like you explain we're basically a software company and we yeah. have this little hardware thing we do on the side. But... Yes. All right. So you've you've explained that you're really not a hardware company at all. You're a software company. Yes. And the founders, you know, can make that story. How to explain our business, right? And then the VCs have been a lot more receptive. Yes. All right. Well, Keith, is that? Do you think that's something that would work? I mean, you guys are so. Your hardware is so cool and so front and center, but your IP is software. That's right. So my pitches were 90% software, 10% hardware. <laughs> we can't deny there will be a hardware because we are really producing a product. But, you know, it's a learning journey. We're talking to VCs and as, every time we talk to them, we learn about their thought process and what they're thinking. But it's for us, we need to meet the right VC that could see this future, this vision. And once, you know, they'll, they'll be the right ones. Well, I mean, software companies... And when VCs ask what they're going to use the money for, it's always, we're going to hire more engineers and we're going to hire more marketers. It's really simple. But as a hardware company, like Tom, are, are you raising funds right now? Uh, currently, we, yeah. of course, we are opening every time. Okay. <laughs> when you get venture funds or, or the next round, what's, what is the primary use of funds? Is it software developers and marketing or is it hardware expenses? Uh, software development. And business development. So, really, it, it is a software company profile. Yes. All right. Keith, what about you? We're raising. We need talent acquisition. We need data scientists, crunch all data, build up the, um, the whole data structure. And engineers, they don't come uh, that easily, especially in Singapore. Everyone wants a data scientist. They're in high demand. And for us, as a startup, to hire the best people, it is uh, was a challenge, but but now that we got some traction, you get people who are interested and they see the vision. Makes sense. And actually, we talked about hiring, you know, business development and hiring uh, marketers. Let's let's talk a bit about scaling up, because scaling a hardware company is a whole lot harder than scaling a software company. I mean, writing software that supports ten people is. Not all that different from writing software that supports a thousand, and software that supports a thousand is not that different from software that supports a million. But the difference between manufacturing 10 units is really different from a thousand, which is really different from like a million. It's almost like reinventing the company. So, Toma, what, what are your thoughts on scaling? Um, we don't want to sell our sell hardware. Uh, in our case, our device is so expensive, so we want to distribute freely, totally free. We, we want to get the revenue from software side. We don't have to expect the hardware sales, but uh, getting money from a customer experience-based new ecosystem. So it, it's like a software-based company, I think. Okay. And Keith, if, if you're moving from one or two proof-of-concept robots to thousands or 
tens of thousands of these robots around the world. What, what would you have to change about your company to make that happen? It's, um, it's a good problem to have, isn't it? It would be. It's a lot of business. I'll be quite happy to have that. We will start with contract manufacturing because a lot of the components are already pre-made. We just order from the factory, but we need to piece them together, you know, integrate them. So that can be done really by uh, contract manufacturers. We'll work with them. You know, and uh, we'll primarily focus on the software and building the business. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds really like both of your long-term strategy is to make the hardware manufacturer somebody else's problem, to, to outsource that and focus on the software. Give them some business. Yeah. Okay. Listen, we've got, I'm going to have one more question for these guys, and it's an important one, but I want to remind you, please send, the, send any questions you want me to ask them to the slido.com like the QR code and I'll ask them on your behalf but to kind of wrap it up I want to ask where does this all end I mean hardware startup IPOs are relatively rare compared to software and I think that's because growth tends to be a little slower and I'm curious do you think looking into your own crystal ball do you think the local, most likely exit for your company is going to be an IPO? Do you figure you're going to be acquired by another company? And what do you think would be the most likely industry that would be interested in acquiring a company like yours? Keith, what are your thoughts? Initially, long, long ago, I thought Starbucks would buy me out because <laughs> we were going to be a, a big threat to them. But I'm sure they're looking at different options as well. But as I started this journey, I realized it's really more than just coffee. You know, we're building a technology that can be repurposed for food, for, you know, the food industry. And then I realized that company is worth a lot more than that. Um, definitely IPO for me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Tomo, what, what are your thoughts? I think it's not based on the industry side, but uh, what I want to do as a founder and CEO, right? It's quite difficult to answer as a founder and CEO because uh, as a founder, of course, M&A acquisition by other companies, it's not our scope, of course, because I'm a founder. All right. But uh, from as CEO, I don't deny any kind of possibilities, even uh, firing myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Well, listen, I want to open this up to the questions we've got coming in from the audience and um, there's a really good one that I want to ask both of you it's like so do you ever regret starting a company uh, Keith what are your thoughts never on it's the best thing I've ever done really absolutely <laughs> oh. absolutely no no two two ways about it that's amazing I, I've I mean I've started a number of them and it's always there are always days that I regret it but long term I, I looking when you're looking back, you never regret it. But there are days that are always rough. Regret for not doing it better, but never regret for doing it. Never regret for starting it. Yeah. Tomo, right. what about you? Are there days where you kind of wish I'd never started this company, or are nothing? nothing? No regret. No course. regrets. All yes. right, fantastic. Because I'm doing every every day. I'm doing just uh, what I want to do. All right. Well, and you've been doing it for a long time, since 95, in, in different yes. startups. <laughs> okay. I'm better on, on internet. All right. Keith, I think this one's more for you. Why Japan? 
why focus on Japan? I think for- Japan does have similar pain points as, as in Singapore with a manpower, you know, labor shortage. I believe uh, even 7-Eleven is facing the labor shortage and they're ch- trying to reduce the number of hours they're open. And Japanese are very forward-looking. They, they embrace technology. So it's, it's a good market for us, for sure. Right. Um, so, so Tomo, you never regret starting a company, but what are the things that you still worry about day-to-day? Fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's part of startup it's life. Leer, it's a leer of my voice. You're almost always raising funding for yes. something. Keith, what about you? What, what keeps you up at night? Obviously, fundraising. But that is something that you can't change. You know, you just got to do it great, do a great job. And hopefully, through the power of the universe, someone will spot us. Right? <laughs> but really, what's in, within my control will be that if we stop innovating, if we stop innovating, that is the end. And if we stop attracting talents to join us for this mission, then we'll go nowhere. I, I think it's interesting both of you mentioned fundraising. And it makes sense because that's something that's really kind of front and center for all startups. But I'm curious about something like attracting the right employees or, or hiring the right people, which is something I've always found you know, I end up spending a, a huge amount of my time focused on and trying to do. Has that been relatively easy for you, or is that also something that is kind of a, a headache and concern? For us, to make that leap into technology from a coffee shop was a big one. To hire that first group of engineers, how do you even write that job description? That I want to hire you. And when you're telling them this vision... Do they trust that you know what you're saying? It was hard at the, the, the beginning. It's down to the mindset of the employee. The mindset, you know. You've got to have positive people because we're creating things that are not yet sort of realized. You've got to have a lot of belief, a lot of uh, faith in what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. Tomo, what about you? Do, you? do you spend a lot of your time as CEO recruiting employees, trying to find the right people? Yes, of course. Not so many times, but uh, we, uh, I use a lot of time to hiring and uh, how to you know, bubbleize our missions and uh, you know, product values and everything to hire them. In my case, it's very you know, strange. <laughs> because you know, my, my parents both had their own company, so founder and the founder. All right. So they were welcome my own business. Yeah. It, were your parents actually encouraging you to start a company? Yes. Really? So they celebrated when I quit the last company, Recruit. Yeah. Right, which is they a, celebrated. Wow, congratulations to graduate Recruit. <laughs> That's really unusual in 1992 or yeah, 1995. Right, yeah. Most parents would be horrified if their children quit Recruit. So in my case, no family blogs. Let, let's talk about going global a bit. Keith, you mentioned before that Japan is a really big market, an attractive market. Are you focused on other countries besides Japan, or is Japan like your first target? Absolutely. Um, we'll scale in Singapore, 
you know, to gain all the experience because um, you need a lot of experience running through the supply chain, topping up and having the systems running 24-7. PEN is strategic for us because we have a partner here we're working with. Uh, we're coming to the Tokyo Olympics. Our robots are going to be there serving coffee. And, and it's, 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 it's just, it just makes sense to be here. But our solution really could be everywhere. We've got inquiries from around the world. Okay, so, so far you've got customers and proof of concepts in Singapore. You've got an up-and-coming proof of concept or customer here in Japan. Yes, in Japan. Um, we've done shows in Australia. Right. Coffee's huge in Australia. So definitely going to be there. Tomo, you've been focused on Japan. Have you... Have you done... Sa- no, you have done some sales no, uh, out of Japan, haven't you? we don't focus on only in Japan. So we think every time... Not domestic fast, but uh, global fast. And uh, we have approached to the global market uh, from maybe six or seven years ago. Finally, we found the market in Japan, so now we are approaching to Japan. But uh, in the past, we have approached at the beginning to the global market fast. Well, that's, what's the, the logic there? Because I understand, like Keith was saying, like Singapore is not a big market. You know, you're, you're forced to look outside of Singapore from the very beginning but Japan is a big market. So yeah, everybody, why you, everybody why? says so. Yeah. So, so, so a lot of startups say, uh, we want to go global, go global after domestic. <laughs> because, you know, our domestic market is so big. So, so why did you go global first? Because our product is brand new in the global market. So I believe we can Get fight. more traction. Yes, more traction from outside yes, and then right, come right. back in to right, Japan. Right, we have confidence in about that. But if I copied some technology from overseas to Japan, maybe we do the business only in Japan because we cannot fight with them in All other right. countries because we have copied. So what, what what was the first country that you really got traction in? Five years ago, uh, the, our first exhibition was in Hong Kong, the Asia and Europe, not uh, North America. It, it is interesting because I think that particularly for global B2B startups and Asian hardware startups are very focused on Japan as like the main export market because of its size. But more and more Japanese founders are telling me that they'll exhibit at CES and, and focus heavily on the outside markets rather than Japan. Okay, well, listen, guys, I want to thank you for sitting down with me today, and let's please give them both a huge round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you very much. And we're back. You know, I think one of the most surprising things I learned from this interview was the way in which both of these companies were dealing with the challenges of raising money and scaling as hardware startups. Basically, both of them took the same approach, which is insisting that they are not actually hardware startups at all, but rather software startups, and explaining that the value is in the IP and that they plan on outsourcing all manufacturing. Now, it's easier to understand Tomo's position on this. They're using standard, inexpensive NFC chips, and their customers consider the hardware itself to be disposable. And the value is the data and the analysis. So it makes sense that Aquabit Spirals is run as a software company and treated as a software company. 
Keith's position that Crown Digital is a software company, while perhaps correct, is not as obvious. With their robot barista, the hardware is expensive, and the integration of the components requires considerable expertise. Of course, at scale, they might be able to outsource production, and they certainly have IP in the controlling software and the recipes. But I think it's going to be a challenge to get investors and partners to not think of them as fundamentally being a hardware company. But I thought the most interesting and counterintuitive experience that both shared was that of going global. Now, the standard advice about global expansion, and and this is the advice I always give, is that you should find product market fit in your home market, build an initial customer base there, and then think about global expansion. Both Tomo and Keith found this advice to be wanting, and they found initial adoption overseas first, with Tomo re-importing the innovation back to Japan. So why is this? I I doubt there's anything hardware-specific in their experiences. Perhaps it's simply a numbers game. I mean, more markets means more potential customers, and a greater chance that someone will need exactly what you've created. But the sales process is much harder away from your home market. But maybe, particularly if you're doing something that is genuinely innovative, being from a different country and a different market means that potential customers are more likely to assume that you're taking a new and different approach. You'll have to work harder to convince them that you understand their market, of course. But perhaps being from somewhere else makes people more understanding of why you want to do things differently. If you want to talk about innovation in hardware or software for that matter, Tomo, Keith, and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 152 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you that Keith, Tomo, or I, or maybe all of us will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook or even Twitter. But even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Have a good old-fashioned analog conversation. The real reason Disrupting Japan continues to grow is not social media marketing. It's because listeners like you tell people about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.